You're about to hear a Lord's Day sermon that was preached at Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois. This sermon comes from a series called That You May Believe. In this series, we take a long journey through the gospel according to John to discover who Jesus is and why it matters. We hope you enjoy this audio. Hear the word of the Lord from John 6, 16 to 21. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him in the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, uh, good morning. My name's, hey, great, awesome. Uh, my name's Sam, one of the pastors here. Glad to be with you this morning. Um, I love these short passages because it allows me to say a few extra things. So if I may, before we get into the service or to the sermon here, um, two things really. One, uh, I want to express my gratitude to the band, the musicians this morning, um, and the way that they led us, especially that new song. I love that call and response. Just um, There's something about singing together um, where we acknowledge the goodness of God. And this is the beauty of, of congregational life or life in community and on mission together, is that... Um, Oftentimes, you know that the person standing next to you maybe didn't have a great week or something really difficult was going on. And so the fact that they are standing there and singing about God's goodness in the midst of difficulties and trials is just a testimony of how God sustains his people. And so I love that. I love being able to sing with you guys week in uh, and week out. Now, second thing that I want to say uh, is in regard to this church picnic, which I'm really looking forward to. It's always a great time. Uh, but I want to put this one reminder out there that we are, are gathering as a church, church-wide picnic, all the MCs that are scattered throughout the city uh, week in and week out, coming together to celebrate, just have a good time, enjoy one another. But it's not just that, not just about us coming together. Uh, it's about us coming together on mission. And so this is a great opportunity, an incredible missional opportunity. We always talk about um, discipleship is not only being discipled, but also making disciples as you go. And part of that is living lives on mission, telling people about Jesus, inviting people into places where Jesus is acknowledged and we're desiring learning to learn his ways. And so this is a really like fun atmosphere, low bar, non-threatening place where if you're, you've got somebody you're on mission to, I really highly encourage you to invite them to join Join us as we just enjoy one another. It should be a nice evening. Hopefully the weather cools down a little bit as we move to Wednesday evening. Um, but it's just a really good time. And so I want to encourage you, not, not just to live like family as we gather as God's family together on Wednesday night, but to live like God's family on mission. So um, with that, those two things said, let me, let's just together, let's go to the Lord in prayer and, uh, and ask for him to bless this time that we have together. 
Father, it is a, a joy, a privilege to, to be able to come in uh, into the assembly um, each Sunday morning and be reminded that um, in spite of how difficult life is and in spite of how challenging things are that we face and the discouragement and, and all of the various things that, that can make our, our life difficult here under the sun, the truth that sustains us is that you are God that you are sovereign and you are good. And this morning I pray, Lord, that as we open up this text, that you'd help us to realize that you are a God that does not leave us in the dark. You have not left your people um, as, blind, as the blind fumbling their way through this world, um, looking for a light switch. Instead, the light of the world has come. Jesus entered the world. He put on flesh and dwelt among us that we might see what you are like, O God. And so we ask that you would bless this time to open up our eyes to see, unstop our ears that we might hear, soften our hearts to receive the good news of the gospel today and help us to walk out of here as changed people, people who have truly encountered the resurrected Jesus. And so, Lord, we ask that you would bless this time and, Lord, we ask that you would help us to bless you, the God of Israel who, who does wondrous things, the one who, who has blessed the earth and continues to pour out blessing upon blessing. Would your whole earth be filled with your glory, Lord? We ask that this time would be profitable for us and for this church. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, if you are new, I want to welcome you once again. Glad to have you. Uh, but we've been going through the Gospel of John for the last several months. The Gospel of John um, is, is a, it's just a dynamite book of the Bible. Um, and, and really, as we've gone through this Gospel account, we've been asking ourselves two questions. Um, who is Jesus and why does it matter? Those two questions are really key to the Christian life. It's, it's key, not only the Christian life, but, but it determines um, what your future is going to be like. John writes in his gospel that I've come, I've, I've documented these things. I'm here telling you about Jesus, says that, that you would know him, that you would believe in him and find life in his name. And, and the theme that we see, see repeated over and over is this idea of eternal life. And oftentimes we think eternal life is just something that happens once you die. Like you, you know, you live life here, and then you expire, your body gets put in the ground, and then that's when eternal life begins. And, and what Jesus is showing us is that eternal life doesn't begin upon death. It, becomes, it begins upon uh, a new birth. When you have put your faith in Jesus, your heart has been regenerated. God has given you the gift of grace, and now this new life, this eternal life begins then. So it not only affects our future, but it affects the right here and right now. And as we go through this sermon series asking those questions, who is Jesus, why does it matter? As we come to John chapter 6, we can throw in a third question, which might say, where is Jesus? And in this story, the answer to this is that Jesus is walking on the water. Strange. Right? I, I guarantee you've, you've never seen anyone do a feat like this. In fact, as we come to this passage and see Jesus walk on the water for the second week in a row, we are come, coming face to face with the miraculous. One of the seven miracles that, that, that John the Apostle documents through his gospel narrative is right here back to back. It's the feeding of, of the 5,000 and goes right into Jesus walking on water. And these two miracles are importantly linked together. It's important to see that. And these miracles that Jesus performs here in John chapter 6, they're not just a cool party trick. 
Right, Jesus isn't just trying to do something cool so everybody will be like, oh yeah, Jesus is a great guy and you know, give him hugs and high fives and stuff like that. What Jesus is doing here through these miracles is, is he's bringing us face to face with something that is profoundly significant. And the significance of these instances here with the multiplication of the fish and the loaves and then we see him walking on water, what these things do is, is ultimately it brings us back to those first two questions. Who is Jesus and why does it matter? And as I said a moment ago, it not only affects the future, knowing the answer to this question as the Bible puts forth will allow you to navigate the choppy waters of life today. So that's where we're going to work through today. John chapter 6, as I said, starts with Jesus feeding a multitude, a crowd. Um, it says 5,000 men, and you can speculate with women and children, somewhere between 20 to 25,000 people there gathered with Jesus on the mountainside. And what Jesus is doing is not only um, teaching people about the kingdom of heaven. He's, he's, he's been known going through the... the um, through Jerusalem, to, through, up through Samaria, through Judea, all the way up around to Capernaum, the Sea of Galilee. He's showing people what the kingdom of heaven is like through these, these healings, these miracles, all of the things. His, his, his teaching is talking about the kingdom of heaven. So he's teaching about the kingdom of heaven and demonstrating what the kingdom of heaven is like. And that last scene that we saw with Jesus, the fish and the loaves, it concludes with people in verse 14 saying that Jesus is the prophet. This is an important reference here. The prophet is pointing back to Deuteronomy 18 where Moses is telling the Israelites that there will be one who comes after him who is like him, who will be like a prophet, showing people, telling people about the kingdom of God, proclaiming God's word. And so there's this group consensus that Jesus is the prophet. Now, there's, there's something, a transition that happens, and it wasn't read this morning, but it's important to see this. is the context of the whole situation where Jesus ends up walking on water. This is very important to see. In verse 15, the crowd gets an idea. Not only do they recognize Jesus as the prophet, as he has revealed himself to be, they, they start having these bigger plans for Jesus, having bigger fit, what we see is they want something more. Now, the context of this is that uh, the Israelites, the Jews, are, are living under Roman rule. Um, because they had been disobedient to God, they, they had um, the prosperity that they had once ex enjoyed and experienced had slipped th through their fingertips, and the Romans had come in and now have, have jurisdiction over the land of Israel. And with this, I mean, th there were relative positive things to this, um, because it brought a kind of stability to a very turbulent area in the world. Um, but, but what it also brought, which the Jews didn't like, was heavy taxation. That the Jews were taxed by the Romans. They, they were under their jurisdictions. It felt like a lot of their life, they, they really became second-class citizens in their own homeland very quickly. And because of this dynamic between the Jews being subjected to the Roman rules, the vision that they had, the plan that they had, the aspirations they had for Jesus was not just that he would be a prophet, but to be their king. They wanted Jesus to reestablish Israel. They, they had those red caps that said, make Israel great again. That's what they wanted. They wanted Jesus to come in and take the reins back 
so Israel could be restored to its glory. Now, this kind of makes sense when you step back. Now, a lot of times we get very snobbish when we read through these historical accounts. We get that way with Peter when we see him being sort of bullheaded with Jesus. And we say, I would have never said that. It's like, yeah, you would have said that. Now, same thing goes on with, with these crowds here. Like, we say, well, that's so silly for them to, to think that Jesus would want to be their king. That's absurd. Um, for them to do this. But this actually makes a lot of sense. If you're living in this real time, Jesus had been talking about the kingdom of heaven. He'd been telling people about what the kingdom of God is like, showing them what the kingdom of God is like. And the people are listening. They're captivated by that. And they're looking at Jesus and saying, we're in. Let's get this baby going. Let's, Let's start it today. The deal is that they want to make Jesus king right here and right now. And they don't have time to put together a campaign. They don't have time to even like, for, like uh, create like some sort of election fraud, which gets their guy up on top. They don't have time to do that. What they want to do is make Jesus king by force. What they want to do is start a revolt that sort of mirrors what happened maybe 150-ish years ago as the Maccabees led a revolt trying to recapture Israel, to reclaim it as their own, as they were under threat of of the rule of someone else, once again. Now the crowd wants Jesus to do this. They want him to be king. They want him to to reach for the throne, uh, to grab the crown, to take it. But we have to remember in this situation, remember back in John chapter five. It's been a few weeks ago, I know. But in John chapter five, Jesus goes out of his way to tell us that he only does what he sees the father doing. Jesus is aligned to the Father's will. He's come to earth to perfectly live out the plan that God has for him. And and knowing what the Father's plan is and, and hearing the murmurs of the crowd, right? He's perceiving what the crowd really wants from him. He says, that ain't it. He's like, I'm not into that. The whole going for the crown, that's not for me. Now, that that's to... That's, he's saying that in the midst of a lot of peer pressure. People are putting a lot of expectations on him. And, and what's Jesus to do? What's he do in this situation? As the pressure mounts, as the expectations of the crowd, massive crowd, by the way, it starts to kind of gain momentum and, and get a buzz. What's Jesus do? He withdraws. Look at verse 15. Perceiving then that they, that's the crowd, were about to come king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When Jesus is faced with rival desires, right, a desire that, that is, is contrast, you've got the, the will of the father, desire of the father, what the father wants the son to do, and then you have the will, the desire of the crowd. When Jesus is faced with this collision, what does he do He retreats. He withdraws and actually says he does it again, which means he's done this before. That there's been other times where the expectations of the crowd sort of mounts and mounts and mounts, and Jesus retreats to go be with his father. He physically removes himself from the noise of the crowd, even of his own disciples, and goes to the mountainside to be alone to have solitude and prayer with his father. Now, a lot of times when we talk about retreat, um, 
what gets invoked is sort of military terms, right? The idea, like if you've got two, two armies that are on a collision course and one of the armies is retreating, it's like, well, they either are outmanned, they're not strong enough, or they're just a bunch of cowards and they're retreating. That's not this situation. The kind of retreat, the kind of withdrawal that Jesus does is not cowardly. It is not weak. In fact, it's the opposite. It is a, it is a, a gesture it is a demonstration of courage and strength. Isaiah 30 says this, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Jesus' ability to not cave to the pressures of the crowd, instead to, to go back to the Father, to, to give his ear to the Father so he can hear him more clearly is a demonstration of his resolve and strength to come and to do the will of the Father. In order to hear the Father clearly, Jesus needed to separate himself from the crowd. Prayer in solitude. This moment, it's just a sentence. It's just a sentence in this passage, but this sentence keys us into the fact that prayer in solitude is both a hard and important discipline for the Christian life. That if you're a Christian, one of the hardest things, but most necessary things for you to do is to learn to pray and to find solitude with your heavenly Father. And it's important because it's very easy for us to drown in a sea of expectations and opinions of others. And oftentimes, we become most susceptible to the, the expectations and opinions of others um, where we go to in order to find our sense of identity, in order for us to find who we truly are, what makes us us, where we go to find our approval, our, our attaboy, our sense of worth. Now, I'm going to generalize, generalize this in a sweeping way. There's going to be exceptions here. But oftentimes, for men, this this surfaces in work, right? The place where you go for your, your identity, the place where you go to get your approval and sense of validation, you go to your work, whether that's through your boss and getting his accolades, getting his praise, or through a client that you're working with, trying to do a good job so that they'll hire you back or, or tell their friends about you. You're working to appease them, to, to satisfy their opinions and their expectations, Sometimes it can even be with, with dealing with the expectations of your coworkers. For women, a lot of times, this surfaces in the midst of your most beloved relationships. Right? Th those relationships which are, are near and dear to you, and you sense um, obligation, you sense you sense um, expectations, you spec, maintain unity with them, which is a good thing. You are willing to bend and to move and to do whatever it takes to keep those people satisfied. Whether it be with your spouse, your, your kids, friends, your missional community, you find those expectations, those, those opinions start to weigh on you. And when those things are, are where you find your identity and it's not going well, they start to sink you. They start to bog you down. You get worn out by the voice of the crowd. 
These expectations can feel like waves crashing into us. It can shake us. I mean, if, if the opinion of others is good in the moment, it's fine. Everything's honky-dory. Right? Everybody's giving me the thumbs up. It's, it's easy to maintain that. But as soon as there are unmet expectations or, or opinions that, that are not favorable, it feels like you're being crushed. It feels like you're, you're being disoriented, being rattled around. And what prayer and solitude is meant to do is to shut down the noise, the opinion of others, so you can get closer to the Lord and hear what he has to say about you and your truest identity as a beloved child. And it's when you find these these times of prayer and solitude, you're anchored, like you're stable, that no matter what crashes into you, no matter how you feel like you're dropping the ball or or people have opinions of you that are shifting, you have a foundation that is secure. You are kept. Now, this is why it's so important to make time for solitude and prayer. If you don't do it, you're going to be tossed around a lot. We do it because we need to hear the Lord's voice clearly. Now, it's important, but it's hard. I, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure almost everybody in this room, if you've tried to sit down to read your Bible on a daily basis, if you've tried to carve out 15 minutes for prayer, if you've tried to get away on a little solitude, whether it's a, a, a 30-minute walk or whatever it would be, you have found there is all kinds of difficulty in carving out that time to be silent, to be before God. There's so many demands on us. There, there's, there's things that, that are going on in our head. We're constantly chattering and, and in a way that keeps us from being able to hear what God actually has to say. It's because we live in a fast-paced, loud, noisy world with persistent people. This time of solitude and hearing the Lord's voice can be so challenging. And you might feel like, man, I don't know if I can do it. I've tried it, it doesn't work. But here's the deal. The Lord commands this of us. In Psalm 46, he says, be still and know that I am God. God has to tell us. It doesn't come to us naturally. Like there's always something humming in our minds, in our hearts, in the world, our circumstances that want to cloud us, to, 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 to foggy up our vision. The Lord says, once you are still, once you have found solitude with me, then the fog clears out. Then the noise dies down. Then you can hear. Solitude is an important discipline in the Christian life. Jesus shows us that. Whether it's in daily mini retreats, like you call your morning devotions, time of solitude, which that is, that counts. Um, or it's, or it's actually carving out time. You get a couple hours. You, you go on a little overnight stay somewhere. And, and you just have the ability to, to be before the Lord, to put out all the distractions, get away from the screens, get away from the to-do list, get away from the calendar, and have that time of solitude so you can hear the word of God. And we see this happen with Jesus. Jesus' solitude reorients. This isn't even like there's no second thought here. They want the pressure. They, they want Jesus to be king. And Jesus, with ease, says, nope. In fact, he doesn't even tell them nope. He just walks away. Now, what's interesting about this passage 
is that a lot of time there, there are people, and some Christians even, some people use verses like this to try and keep Jesus and Christians out of politics. They say, well, well, Jesus had a chance to take over. He had a chance to take the throne, and he passed up it. Therefore, Christians, we ought to just stay out of the political mess anyway. We've got to keep to ourselves. And maybe, maybe they'll make a concession and say, sure, um, you can vote, but be quiet about it. Don't let anybody know your opinions. Um, they, they certainly don't want you to speak up about your convictions. And definitely not in the public square. Because some of this mentality here, this false mentality, is, is they think that because Jesus said that his kingdom is not of this world, that we just got to leave it alone. That what goes down here on earth, like there's this divide in their minds that, that heaven is God's and earth belongs to Satan. Therefore, just cut your losses, let him have his way. We just got to back out. We're going to get beamed up here anyway. It doesn't matter. But that's just so wrong. That's bad theology. So there's so many Christians out there right now, and we're, we're about to move into an election cycle, that are saying, and, and a lot of Christians who have a big platform, who are saying, you know, Christian, just put your head down, try not to make waves, don't, don't make your stance known, don't, don't offend anybody, right? Because then, then you'll break the 11th commandment of thou shalt be nice, And unfortunately, this mindset of, of a detached Christian from what's going on in the world here has poisoned so many evangelicals. So many Christians feel like they have their hands tied, politically speaking. They get duped into thinking, this is crazy to me, they get duped into thinking a more biblical or more Christian society is actually unloving. That it cre creates an inhumane environment. And what happens when Christians step back from the political sphere? Now, I'm not saying we put all our eggs in that basket. That's not what I'm advocating for. And there's a lot of ways where you can get to twist my words if you wanted to. But we can talk about this more. I'm opening up a huge can of worms. But when Christians get duped into thinking that this political realm, this earthly realm is not really our business to get involved with, what happens is the secularites, the, the godless people end up running the show. They, they're the ones who start taking power. They're the ones who are creating legislation. They're the ones that are determining what's good and what's right based upon their own standard, not God's. And what happens is, they would never say it this way, but I'm happy to say it, their motto becomes on earth as it is in hell. That's what it becomes. When you have godless people running the show, people who want nothing to do with God, who have no regard for God's commands, society becomes more and more corrupt, more and more inhumane, more and more despondent. I'm not up here to advocate for a specific candidate. What I'm up here this morning to say is that more than ever, our society needs Christians to stand up for the word of God. More than ever, our society needs revival and reformation. But we have to realize something here. This is so key, listen here. We have to realize that revival and reformation doesn't come by force. 
We're not talking about crusades here. We're not talking about storming the capital. In Reformation, the way this comes is by the changing of hearts, which is God's jurisdiction. The way revival and reformation come is by reformation, by proclaiming the word of God, by evangelizing, by sharing the gospel, preaching that Jesus came into the world to save sinners and to save all things, to work the restoration, the redeeming of all things. And this comes by a change of heart, which only God can do. But here's the thing. That doesn't mean we stand back hands off, church. That doesn't mean we just hand it over. Because the church has been called by God to speak up as a prophetic voice, to cry out, this is the word of the Lord. Here is the way of the righteous. And this isn't just isolated to little quadrants. When when Jesus gives the great commission, he tells us to go disciple the nations. All of the people, all of the people in all of the places, which means politics gets wrapped up in that. If you're going to teach people to obey all that Jesus has commanded, a piece of all things is politics. Now, this just gives us a little bit of a, uh, there's many reasons here, but it, it reveals to us some of the reasons why Jesus passes up the crown here in this moment. It's not because he's apolitical. That, that couldn't be further from the truth. If you think Jesus is apolitical, you, you gotta read the Bible. The reasons why Jesus, the top two at least here, that Jesus passed up the crown is number one, it wasn't the Father's will for him to take it at that time. Number two, this is key here, the crowd was aiming too low. They didn't have a big enough vision. They didn't understand who Jesus really was. He wasn't just king of the Jews. The man that was standing before them was king of the cosmos, the king of all nations. They had too small of a view of Jesus. And because Jesus' solitude time had provided clarity for his mission, Jesus stays the course. He doesn't, he doesn't get swept up into the expectations of the crowd. Now, at some point in there, while Jesus is away on solitude, his disciples decide to leave without him. I don't know, understand how this went down, but they just like, they got out of town. And we see this in verse 16. It says, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea they got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum, which is, you know, they literally are going across the sea to get there, um, fast, fastest route. Now, this time it was dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because of a strong wind that was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. Now, let me see something here. The scene is this. It is late at night. It is dark. I'm not sure why they decide to leave for Capernaum without Jesus, but they do. They're, 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 they're setting out sail. And they must be very, very eager to get there because they leave at not a, it didn't make logical sense to leave at night. It's hard to see in the dark. They don't have LED flashlights like we do. 
Now, as they are rowing, and they get out, you know, they're, they're far out in sea. They're, they're three to four miles out into the sea. And as they're out there, um, there is an unexpected storm that swells. This would have been common um, on the Sea of Galilee here, where, where there's mountain ranges all over the place that surrounds the sea and, and below sea level. And it just made for, it just could turn, turn into a bad situation real fast. And it happens to do so. And the, the disciples are there in a boat without Jesus. They're three or four miles in the middle of the sea, and they experience strong winds and choppy waters. Now, if we were in that boat, if I were in that boat, I'll speak for myself. I would, um, I've been a Midwesterner all my life. And so I, I would say that that situation would be scary. It would be a little intimidating to be out in the middle of the sea in the middle of the night, knowing that you can't see what's coming and something's coming and it's not good. So, while I have that disposition, the fishermen in the boat, because many of Jesus' disciples were fishermen. They, they were used to the, the choppy waters. They were, they were familiar with how the sea could take unexpected turns, just sort of par for the course with their occupation. So it wasn't really the sea that frightened them, but we are told that they are, in fact, frightened by something. And that thing that frightens them the most is the fact that there is a mysterious figure that is coming towards them on top of the water. Now, I don't know what they think in that moment. John doesn't tell us. If you go to some of the other gospels, there's a little bit of speculation. Um, maybe it's a ghost. They think um, there's some creature, a sea creature, some sort of Nephilim creature or something of the seas that's coming to get them. And they are fearful. And that's when the panic sets in. You've got grown men Screaming like little girls. Because this thing that has never happened to them before, they see this figure coming. Now, if we could just pause the story right here for a moment. I would like to present, and maybe you can agree with me, this is a lot like what life feels like. At least to me. The idea of of being in turbulent situations, um, oftentimes put there by your own poor decisions. And, and you have this feeling of familiarity. You, you've been through choppy waters before, and so you feel like most of this situation is manageable. Like, we're gonna get through this. But then, on the horizon, is this worst-case scenario. This thing that's looming out there that terrifies you like you've never been afraid before. It's super scary. If this thing were to happen, if this thing were to meet you, you would come unraveled. Now, there's that situation that you're dealing with. There, there's the real situation. There's the uh, prospective situation of what could be. And then you're in the middle of a boat uh, with a bunch of other anxious and nervous people as well. So you've got your anxiety, you've got your fears, you've got your worries, and then you're surrounded by other people who also can't keep themselves together either. That is kind of what life feels like, right? There is no shortage of stress, of anxieties, of fears, of unknown, expect of unknown um, situations, of things that could just really change our lives for the worst. And when we are faced with these situations, it's, it's very easy for us to want to take matters into our own hands, except for the fact that 
if we were to do that, like Psalm 22, I think, talks about this. I'm going off the top of my head. It's, it says something to the effect that we're, we're alone. There's no one there to help us. That's what it's like. They're in the middle of the ocean, or the sea, it's not the ocean, in the middle of the sea. They got no help. There's this bad thing that's coming their way, or so they think. And in those situations, it's easy to want to take things into our own hands. Or, or maybe, or maybe you're wired different and you're more like Jonah and you're like, I resign, throw me overboard. I'll just put this thing to an end. Now, before we do either one of those things, it's important for us to learn what the disciples learned that night. And here's what they learned. A healthy fear of the Lord mutes all other fears. True fear of the Lord will suppress anything else that crops up fears. Look at at verse 20 here. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was on land to which they were going. Now, as Jesus walks towards them, in the midst of their fear, in the midst of the chaos of the sea, Jesus meets their fear by saying, don't be afraid. Compared to the storm, Jesus is the terrifying one. You see that? Jesus, the storm is doing what it does. It's, it's waves are moving, the wind's pushing, but Jesus is walking atop it. No matter how high the waves surge, Jesus is there. He is showing that he is the greater power. The power of the sea says nothing on him. No matter what the sea did, Jesus just treaded the waves. Jesus has a power that overcomes the situation. And he shouts to the disciples over the whipping wind. He says, it is I. Which that phrase is ego yemi. Ego yeme. Now, the, the English translation of your Bible falls flat here. Because the way that it, it reads, it looks like it's just a, a personal greeting. It's like, hey, guys, chill out. It's just me, Jesus. And, and actually, yeah, in one sense, that's true. That is Jesus. But, but in a, a deeper, more profound sense, what Jesus is saying here, um, it, these are the same words that are translated from, from Hebrew into Greek that, that, that Jesus says in the midst of the burning bush in Exodus 3. When Jesus says, I am who I am. I am. Jesus is standing on top of the waves and says, I am. See, where Moses, the prophet, walks through the sea, Jesus is the God who walks atop the sea. And standing there on top of his creation, Jesus proclaims, I am Yahweh, just as he did to Moses. And what he's doing in this moment is not just revealing strength. He's revealing the source of his strength. He's saying that he is the Lord of creation. He is God, the king of the cosmos. Now, here's where this matters. Like, who is Jesus? He's the king of the cosmos. He is God. And because Jesus is who he is, this situation at the sea, it can't topple him. 
He says, fear not. See, this is why it matters. See, while you're going through your life and you might feel like you're in a boat, maybe you're on harbor right now and it's nice. You got a little reprieve, okay? But it's not long before you're back out in the middle of the sea and it feels like the wind's blowing and the, the water's shaking and you're, you're starting to reevaluate your life decisions. And you're going to need to know, how am I going to get through this? What is, what is the solution to the fear, the anxiety that I am carrying in my chest? The thing that solves it is knowing who it is that is there with you in the storm. It is Jesus, the I am. And when the disciples see Jesus for who he is, they can actually take Jesus at his word. Like he doesn't just say fear not and they still keep wrestling through their fears. There's this shift that happens. They're afraid to start out and then Jesus, they're glad to bring Jesus aboard. There's something about Jesus' presence right there with them as they pull him on their little ship that subdues the anxiety, the fear, the fright, and anxiety stops. If Jesus is with us, what do we have to fear? If, if Jesus is the king of the cosmos and all power and authority belongs to him, not a single thing happens in history without his fear. I mean, we even profess it this morning that everything that comes our way it might be hard, it might be painful, but it, it, it comes to us from the hand of a loving and mighty God that enables us to be upheld through the difficulties and trials of life's storms. Now, in this situation, there, 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 there are places in the Gospels where Jesus calms the storm and he shows his power and authority in that regard that, that he says to the, to the water, be still, and it stops. But in this situation, we don't know. It's possible that the storm kept going. It's possible the wind kept going. We don't know if Jesus hushes the storm, but regardless if he does or if he doesn't, the thing that changes is the fact that Jesus is there with his disciples. He's on the boat. He's been received by them with gladness, and his presence has calmed their fears and anxiety. And Jesus gets them through. Now, it, it says that immediately they got to where they were going. There's this play on, on the call to worship in Psalm, I think it's Psalm 107, that, that was read earlier today. It was kind of a, a difference, call to worship. But it referenced how he, he brought them to their haven. That this is what Jesus did. He says, he, he, the seas were going, he calmed the seas, and then he brought them to their haven. It says immediately they got to the land where they were going. Whether it was like a supernatural thing or it's just they got there. No other disruptions, no other, no other scary situations came up in that situation. I don't know. I don't know for sure. Could be either one of them. But one thing that we do know is that Jesus' presence there in the boat calmed the fears of, their, of the disciples. Now, it's important to realize only Jesus can do this. No politician can do this. No politician can, can calm your fears. There's, there's no amount of, of um, setting boundaries in your life that's going to leave you completely immune to the expectations and, and demands from other people. So you're, you're always going to have that. There's always going to be that rub, that pull. 
Only Jesus can calm the storms that we go through in life. If you're a Christian and you are in the midst of a difficult season, perhaps Jesus is presenting himself to you now. Maybe he's standing there with you on the outside of the boat. He's waiting for you to to, to receive him. Now, not not in a, a, a salvific way. If you're a Christian, you've already done that. You've received the gift of grace. But, but in this situation, are you going to acknowledge that Jesus is there with you, the one who rules and reigns over the whole, whole kit and caboodle? Will you turn to Jesus? Will you trust him? Will you let him, will you let him see you through to the end? And the way that we can do that, the, the thing that like frees us to, to turn to Jesus and to trust is the fact that he's, he's dealt with the biggest problem that you will ever face. He's dealt with the most turbulent waters that you could ever imagine, the, the ocean of God's wrath that your sin had earned for you. Jesus took that upon himself and he, he walks a he doesn't In this situation, he doesn't just walk a top. He, he subjects himself to it. He takes your place on the cross, and as we come to him, we receive the free gift of grace that comes only through revelation. It's not by anything that you have done. It's not through putting your life together or figuring out how to safeguard things. Jesus comes to you through revelation, whether it be through the word, like you're reading your Bible, preaching the word, somebody shares the gospel with you. Jesus reveals himself to you and has dealt with the biggest problem. You might be going through a storm. You might feel the anxiety swelling. Listen, and if, if you're not a Christian, may, maybe today Jesus is standing outside your boat. Jesus is, is saying, hey, yeah, this isn't going so well for you, buddy. And I, I sure could bring some, some help. I wanna encourage you to receive that free gift of grace, to welcome Jesus to see him for who he is as the God and Savior. And as you go through your storms, Christian, know that Jesus has not left you alone. Jesus is here with you right now in your midst. Will you receive him? Will you acknowledge his presence? Will you ask for him to work powerfully in your life? Will you submit to his lordship, his rule and reign? Solitude allows us to connect with the I am. Solitude is a gesture that says, Jesus, I trust you. I don't know how it's gonna work. I don't know how you're gonna get me through, but I trust you. Because Jesus is who he says he is, not only can we get through the storm, but we can have courage in the midst of the storm. We can take heart We can press on. We can not grow weary in doing good. We do not have to be afraid for the Lord is with us and he is in control. This morning as we come to the Lord's table, we we are reminded that that Jesus is aware of our, our needs, that Jesus sees this gap that we have, he sees our limitations and because we cannot fulfill our own salvation, we cannot make ourselves right with God, he comes and he does this for us by living a perfect life, dying a substitutionary death in our place 
that we would be credited with his righteousness, that his spirit would indwell in us. That would be a great, a, de- a deposit, a guarantee that we in fact do belong to Jesus and we can take heart. So Christian, as you take the Lord's table today, know that Jesus is who he says he is. He is God, he is redeemer, he is savior. And he is here in our midst now. Let's pray. Father, thank you. We thank you that you, um, even when circumstances look unfavorable, even when things look hard, even when, when we just don't know how it's going to shake out, you, you have a plan. There's nothing that shakes you. There, there's nothing that happens in this world that throws you off or, or, or makes you feel that you are, are backpedaling. And because you are the powerful I am, you are the almighty God, we worship you and give you thanks because you have, have put on flesh and experienced the, um, the, what it's like to be a human on this world, earth. We thank you for, for knowing our frame, for meeting our needs, for providing your son that we might have deep courage, that we might have assurance, that we belong to you and you will not leave us or forsake us, that you intend to bring about our ultimate good. We thank you for this promise, and we we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.